Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This episode originally aired October 30th, 2015, right on the edge of Halloween, and is one of the last shows that Everyone Loves a Bad Guy did uh, before it was shuttered. Uh, This episode is just me talking to myself and focuses on a concept uh, as much as any specific individual story. The concept of the evils that you cannot see, the unseen forces that work against the heroes. Uh, Be those nefarious demons in possession stories, uh, in some cases certain haunting uh, haunted house stories can deal with this, and in some cases should have dealt with something that was unseen rather than a horrible CGI monstrosity. There's any number of movies I could be referring to to there. I'll let you take your pick. Uh, And it's still, like I said, it's still an interesting concept to me, but no one seemed that interested, so I wound up talking to myself, and I closed it out with a list, because in the spirit of Halloween, I stumbled across a list. I forget where it's from. I'm sure I go over it in the episode here. Uh, the past tw- the top 25 horror movies of the last 25 years. And I found the list to be egregiously bad. Now, again, 2015, if I were to do this again, it, the, this, the list would look very, very different, of course. But this... So I, you get my list at the end, my top 25 horror movies of the last 25 years. Uh, should have been a bigger indicator to me than it was that I was running out of steam for this show. Unless lists are a big part of what you want to do with your show, and I'm not knocking lists, let me be clear. But unless that's kind of an integral part of what you're doing creatively uh, with your show, if you start reaching for it, like, "Eh, you know what, let's do lists. Um, Not a good idea. Not a good indicator. All right. Per my contractual obligations, I remind you to please like, comment, subscribe, share, rate, review, anything that you can do, whatever your uh, platform of choice happens to be, interact with the product. It helps us out a lot. Thank you very, very much for that. Also helping out uh, the podcast are our sponsors. First up, Grammarly. For you listeners of the W2M network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com w2mnetwork. Again, that's getgrammarly.com w2mnetwork to download Grammarly for free. Also helping us out is Amazon Music. If you would like a free, completely free, 30 days of the Amazon Music Unlimited service, we have a link for you. It's getamazonmusic.com w2mnetwork, and you will get the free 30 days of Amazon Music Unlimited. All 70-plus million songs and podcasts and whatnot that are on that service, you can have access to all of them ad-free for 30 days on us. At the end of the 30 days, if you decide you like the service, you can start paying to keep it. If not, you're out nothing, and you've gained 30 days of access to a wide variety of songs and podcasts that Amazon provides. If you feel the need to benefit, if you would benefit from either of those, please use the links in the description below. Give them a, you try it out. You win, we win, they win, everybody wins. Nice little, you know, circle of winning going on there. 
Right, on that note, let me throw it to myself from 2015, talking about the esoteric understanding of the unseen evils and a list, because lists. Pass to me. It's all on you, buddy. Tonight, I want to talk about how effective can 
evil or bad guys be if they remain unseen? Uh, this is brought on in no small part by having to slug through Paranormal Activity 5, the ghost dimension, this last week. And, hey, look, let's give Toby a face and a body. That made me throw things. And I just, again, I wanted to kind of touch on that. Why is, you know, the first Paranormal Activity or some of the other ones that are legitimately scary, what is it about you know, keeping your villain, your evil force completely unseen? that makes it so effective. So that's what I want to talk about primarily tonight. Uh, also, at the close of the show, I have a first for me here. I have a list. You see, a couple of days ago, my brother and I, my brother was reading uh, through IMDb's stuff, and their 25th birthday is this uh, was earlier this month. So their big gimmick for everything they've been doing is the last 25 whatever of the tw last 25 years. Well, because it's Halloween, they naturally had the top 25 horror movies of the last 25 years. And I read through their list and found it sorely lacking. Now, this is because it, this was as based on ratings and rankings by IMDb users. I can only conclude that they're a bunch of idiots. There were quite a few glaring omissions, uh, serious glaring omissions, and a few inclusions that made me wonder if any of them actually understood the definition of horror. So, taking the honest upon myself, after some prodding from one of my brothers, I looked up, you know, horror movies from the last 25 years, I made a list, and I will read, I will read it off to you at the end of the show, and if you want to laugh, go ahead and look up their list, and then you can compare it with mine, and we can figure out which of us has more credibility as far as this goes. Alright, but, uh, anyway, so since that's kind of what's on the table, I don't have a co-host tonight, uh, I don't know, I didn't. I suppose I didn't ask broadly enough to anyone if anyone was interested in being on the show. I assume a lot of people just simply kind of forgot that it existed because, again, it's been gone for a couple of months. So if you would like to call in, I don't open up the phone lines on this show very often. But if I don't have a co-host, I tend to do so. So if anyone out there is listening live, uh, God bless you. Uh, I mean, I say that for every show that I do for anyone listening live, and I absolutely mean it. You know, there's plenty of other things you could be doing on a Friday evening instead of listening to me prattle on. But if you are, and if you want to call in and talk about, again, what's scary about the unseen, the unknown, examples of that from, you know, film, literature, comics, wherever you happen, wherever you'd like to, uh, the number to do so is 323-657-0901. Once again, 323-657-0901. If you want to call in using Skype, on the Blog Talk Radio player page, there is a Skype icon. It's at the top of the player, kind of in the middle. Uh, there's three or four boxes of dialogue you got to click through. Go through those, and you'll show up on my switchboard. I can get you on the air. All right. Uh, again, I talked a little bit about what inspired me to towards this end, and some of it was Paranormal Activity 5 and the horrible decision to render Toby in bad CGI. Uh, Listen, you, you can feel free to listen to my review of Paranormal Activity 5 from a couple of nights ago with Mark Radlich. He reviewed uh, Gem and the Holograms. I reviewed Paranormal Activity 5, and you can hear my full thoughts there. But it just I just kind of got thinking about it, and you know, what is it about you know, the unknown or the imagination that is so much more terrifying and scary than what you can put on screen or even – I mean, again – the written word has an advantage here and that even the most vivid description is generally speaking left up to the reader to interpret. But again, why does that work so well? And 
I've quoted uh, Stephen King's Dance Macabre more than once on this show and quite a few others when trying to, you know, as not the authority, but certainly an authority on what works, what makes things scary and whatnot. And he actually talks about this. I forget which chapter it's in, but he exp- he talks a great deal about the theory that, you know, the the I believe the analogy, he uh, not the analogy, but the example he uses is, you know, moving up a long flight of stairs towards a door and you open the door and there's a horrifying, you know, giant beetle or there's a giant insect or some such up there and you scream, you run back down the stairs. The audience, you know, watching the movie that this occurs in screams along with our protagonist, but the scream and, you know, the reaction to whatever lurks behind the door is not actually scary. That's more of a release. It's more of an exhalation opposed to tension and tension is what scares you uh and you're not really scared after you see what's behind the door you're scared as you're walking up the stairs reaching for the door and the fine line that you have to ride when attempting to balance you know when do you open that door when is the tension built sufficiently that the reveal is still going to be scary and still going to hold some weight or do you reach a point where you know you've built too much tension? What inevitably, whatever you reveal is going to fall short of the tension you've built. There are certain not, again, not just authors, but you know, movies and what uh, and such that actually never reveal what exactly is behind the door. Uh, most specifically, H.P. Lovecraft was uh, famous for not actually talking about the horrible things that exist in his world. Uh, I mean, most famously, you know, he has described Cthulhu in a fair amount of detail, but that's pretty much the only one. His discussions of, be it the other elder gods or just, you know, the horrible things, he is very kind of vague about what they actually are. And this is, uh, this is on purpose, this is deliberate, because whatever he would have put down on paper would not have matched whatever horrors our own minds conjure up. Uh, and there's quite a few examples. I mean, uh, the Dunwich horror ends with a giant uh, demon-human hybrid of some variety being destroyed, but it's never described. Uh, the end of at the mount, uh, the end of the Mountains of Madness, uh, ends with one of the protagonists being driven insane because he looks back at the shogath that had been stalking them. We never see it. We are never privy to what it is because, again, at that point. What would drive someone insane? Because it's different for you or for me. But the knowledge that whatever horrible thing he looked back and saw just absolutely rendered him incapable of coherent thought is terrifying enough, is terrifying in and of itself. You don't need a vivid description of what the creature is because the human mind will do more, will absolutely do most of its work for you. And this doesn't just apply to uh, – this is a very – let me back up here just a second. This is a very important concept specifically in uh, mystery stories a lot of the times where they where the story does not tell you uh, who the villain is. You're left uh, – again, this happens a lot. Mystery stories, you know, uh, Agatha Christie-style mysteries where you know, the whodunits and you know, the audience does not know – Quite a few Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, fall into that category. Uh, a few spy novels, you know, spy stories as well, uh, the well done ones at least, operate in, you operate in the dark. You don't know, you know, who the true villain is. And that's 
I find that to be an extraordinarily fascinating concept because yeah, I get, one of the reasons I do this show is because I think it's important to look at and to appreciate how a good villain makes a story great and, you know, which ones, you know, fall or fail because of it, which ones succeed because of it or in spite of it. And so, I, again, the notion of just almost not having your villain on screen creates these weird circumstances. And uh, there's two kind of great ways that this is accomplished. And they both absolutely have their merits. One of those is having your antagonist, your villain, actually be invisible. Uh, most famously, of course, H.G. Wells is the Invisible Man. Uh, real briefly, it is not Invisible Man. It's the Invisible Man. Invisible Man is a work by, I believe, a gentleman by the name of Ralph Ellison, uh, which is actually about something completely different. Uh, it deals primarily with the invisibility of... Uh, an African American man. I want to say in the fifties. It's been a while since I've read the uh, since I've read the story. Uh, very heavy on kind of the civil rights thing. But the point there being, the protagonist and the narrator for that story is not corporeally invisible, but is able to exist in the world without actually being without you know being seen or perceived, and the trauma that that creates in within his life, and the notion of attaching a the to it and creating it, at, you know, letting it be. A specific individual actually completely defeats the purpose of the narrative. So please don't screw those up. I had a long debate with someone about that one. Just trust me, two different, they're two distinct and completely different stories. However, with The Invisible Man, uh, you just have, again, the, prote the character, the antagonist for that story is simply rendered invisible uh, through, you know, scientific experimentation, and he can't reverse the process. And that's, you know... Human beings are visual creatures. That is the primary way with which we interact with the world around us. You know, every, you know, kind of, not species, but every living creature, every, again, in this case, species, does so differently with different senses being the predominant one. You know, dogs, for example, are distinctly olfactory creatures. They smell, and that is much more important to them than sight. And uh, deer, I believe, are very auditory creatures. Uh, elk are very visual creatures. That's actually kind of why they hang out next to each other, because one can hear and one can see. And, and for humans, it's visual. That is our primary means of discerning the world around us. And when that is removed from us, when we are put in a circumstance where we have to combat something that just ignores it, it strikes at uh, some pretty visceral fears, because... And I don't just mean the notion of going blind, although that in and of itself can be rel a relatively terrifying experience. But again, if you look at uh, The Invisible Man or, uh, heaven help us, a, a uh, misguided retelling of that story starring Kevin Bacon called uh, The Hollow Man, uh, it's very different because he's just invisible and he starts doing terrible things. But because we can't see him, it renders us nearly defenseless. There's almost no way, I mean, again, there's no way of interacting with it. There's no way of perceiving it. There's no way of knowing where it's coming from. We are stuck with four other eminently weaker senses, trying to, you know, hear, smell, touch, or taste. And that that's not how we're used to dealing with the world. That's not how we like dealing with the world. So the notion of a villain or an opposing force that is able to completely bypass our ability to see it puts us at a monumental disadvantage. 
Now, uh, a lot of the now those two stories in particular, the fundamental narrative is the effects of becoming invisible. You know, Kevin Bacon has the line in Hollow Man that, you know, you have no idea what you can do when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore. And he, you know, kills people. And they have some uh, thermal technology to help vis- to help see where he is. And I, I can't, again, in good conscience necessarily recommend the movie. There's far too many flaws. Uh, again, apart from Kevin Bacon kind of chewing scenery. But it's a very... Uh, you know, an interesting thing, and it's a very interesting thing to you know have to watch our protagonists deal with. How do they you know figure out how to get around it? And you know, the notion of a man who is completely invisible, who just happens to be you know crazy and wanting to do horrible things. You know, what are you going to do? You know, again, sight is how we interact with the world. Now, uh, and to know, just so you know how potent that particular mechanic is of you know. No, again, just removing the ability to see something by and large. Uh, again, one of my favorite slasher movies of all time actually is Predator. You have a bunch of badass commandos led by, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger with uh, Carl Weathers and uh, I believe Bill Duke. That might not be that gentleman's name. Jesse Ventura. She, I mean, you have this really impressive cast, a bunch of impressive physical specimens, uh, elite military training. And the fact that they have no means of visually seeing the predator alien, again, even with all of their firepower, even with all of their again, machismo and their know-how and their training, they can't – they just can't seem to get a handle on this because they can't see it. And that's a really important part of what makes that movie so effective. And then that's that movie also does, I believe, a superb job – of you know, building tension and not letting you see the creature, and then when it does finally reveal it, it remains a very effective tool. You know, the creature, after it's revealed, is no less scary than when it was invisible. Not maybe a little, because again, you can see it, and if you can see it and you know it bleeds, then you can kill it. Uh, thank you for that line. But when it's invisible, when it's not there, it's a really kind of you know terrifying thing that you can't see it. It could be anywhere. And even if you've got a giant gun and, you know, 80s biceps like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're still going to be at a severe disadvantage and you're going to have to try and overcome it. Now, the other, again, that's one kind of approach to this where the character is simply invisible. The other kind is in many ways more interesting, a little bit more difficult to pull off. It's taking your villain, your antagonist, and having it be basically absolutely uh, and I actually want to talk about Toby for a minute or two, uh, specifically, and he is just an invisible force, so that falls into the first category. But for the purposes of discussing this, the final uh, – again, the other kind – the kind where you ha- simply have your primary antagonist be absent is – it's a very kind of – it's a philosophy and a method that was very much kind of brought to the forefront via fantasy novels. And if you want an example, let's consider Lord of the Rings, shall we? In the books, you never see Sauron. Big supreme evil being never makes an appearance. Not Again, not legitimately. That translates to the movies as well. There is, again, you see during the beginning of Fellowship, in, a, in the discussion of the flashback sequence, you visually see Sauron. But that's it. Other than that, he's just a giant disembodied eye. Now, the general 
and again, this is another one that ha- takes place a lot in spy novels, uh, specifically the first several uh, James Bond movies. You kind of knew that a man by the name of Ernst Stavro Blofeld was the one pulling the strings for the organization, but the only ever the only thing you ever saw of him was you know his hand petting the cat. That's where that whole bit comes from. Is you know, if you're mocking the cliche, it starts there, because you never saw anything other than him petting the cat uh, until I forget which num which uh, Bond movie it is numerically, but until uh, you only live twice. Uh, when Donald Pleasance is revealed as Blofeld, uh, they wound up re- Blofeld had a different actor for each appearance, I believe. Uh, but uh, Donald Pleasance was absolutely the correct choice for that for that role. And if you want a slightly more in-depth discussion of that, I I'm going to point you to a lot of my previous episodes of this for reference notes, everybody. So my apologies in advance. But uh, when I first one of the first few episodes I did on this show was talking specifically about James Bond villains with Pat Mullen. And we talked at length about you know, Donald Pleasance uh, being Blofeld from, and you know, the importance of that. So you can go back and listen to that if you're so interested. But uh, and the primary means of mollifying, of you know, dealing with that issue of, okay, I can't or won't use my primary antagonist, is a bunch of lieutenants show up. Uh, again, this is very evident in Lord of the Rings, where they spend a great deal of time fighting. Instead of Sauron, they spend uh, you know, combating Saruman. Uh, you know, other you know, various orc commanders that are given prominence to you know, the ring wraiths. You know, they're all temporary roadblocks because there is no way to give Sauron physical form in that show. He is simply the evil present. You know, the, he is the supreme evil, but he never you know, makes an appearance. And that's another, again, I find that to be a very interesting way of storytelling uh, because it, it leaves an inherent bit of mystery. It leaves the audience wondering... Uh, you know, picking up clues that we're able to gather from what we have seen. There's, and again, a good spy novel, uh, a good spy story, not, you know, Mission Impossible, we blow stuff up spy stories, but a legitimate, you know, one based on intelligence and intrigue. Uh, the, For example, the first Mission Impossible movie actually falls very much into this category. Uh, Bridge of Spy, I haven't seen Bridge of Spies, so I can't speak to that one. Um, but Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, you know those types of stories where the villain is, ne- in some cases, never seen. Uh, even with you know the big reveals in uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the actual kind of nemesis to our protagonist is not revealed. Uh, he actually makes an appearance in some of the other novels uh, when he's he's the spy master that uh, the protagonist is trying to combat, and he finally does bring him down in the very end. But the whole point there is at what great personal cost it winds up being, and uh, I, again, I can only encourage you to read those particular books. Uh, the movie adaptation starring Gary Oldman is also quite well done. If you appre- if you like, you, know, you have to appreciate uh, thrillers that are not breaking into places, blowing things up, and shooting people all the time. And uh, if that's not your bag, that's fine. Uh, again, I pass no judgment. Unless you like white chicks. If you like white chicks, I pass judgment on you. You are a terrible person. All right, beyond that. Uh, just And again... It's just really, I find it a really fascinating storytelling tool that you just never reveal or you never utilize you know, the big bad. Uh, another couple of examples, if I might. Uh, I actually find The Shining to be a fascinating example of this, although I, I'm aware that that's a haunted house and that is actually its own kind of subset of things. But the malevolent 
force within the Overlook Hotel is never given form, shape, or substance until it drives Jack Torrance insane. Oh, excuse me. And at that point, it becomes not about the hotel, but about, and again, avoiding the insane person. He is actually possessed at the end of that, uh, the end of the novel. I, the movie is, well, I, well, I find uh, Stanley Kubrick's Shining, adaptation of The Shining to be fascinating in many, many ways. It's also an adaptation, and I'm when I think about those things, I tend to think about them in terms of more pure canon. And he, after he actually kills himself, his body becomes possessed by the spirit that haunts the Overlook uh, in a desperate attempt to stop it from blowing up, actually. But fails. Uh, apologies if I'm spoiling the novel for no one, for those of you who haven't read it. But uh, I, I figure that, and that's as good a ability as any to transition into you know, talking specifically, since I brought this up, about you know, kind of Toby and the invisible, because it's a big part of haunting stories it's a big part of ghost stories it's a big part of uh even possession stories uh i mean for another example consider the exorcist uh greatest horror movie of all time uh just i mean the only potential alternative i consider i would consider would probably be the silence of the lambs in terms of just best horror movies not what scares me the most that's a different discussion not even my favorite, which is yet another different discussion. But just the best made horror movies, I think it's those two. And I don't think – I think everything else is battling over third. But you know, The Exorcist is terrifying in that it renders you know, so much of what you try to do to combat the evil so impotent. And you, because the little girl, Linda Blair, is not – it's a child. She's not, in this instance, evil. She's being possessed by evil forces. But you never see – you see their manifestation as they possess her, but that you never see the demon itself in – you never see – again, you don't see those things. You see the results thereof. Uh, again, most good horror movies are very good at this. They kind of keep what's actually there on the periphery. Uh, again, possession stories more often than not fall into this category. Uh, depending on how we define possession – uh, there's a few other examples I could cite there of why it doesn't work. And, so, and there are a few instances in which it does, of course. But uh, Okay, so let's talk specifically about Toby, everyone's favorite invisible child-loving demon. When Mark Radlich and I talked about the paranormal activity, not, not just this one, but uh, also Sean Comer, when we talked about the paranormal activity franchise on The Long Road to Ruin, geez, quite a while ago, and... Uh, poor Mark, who does not like horror movies. But uh, it was interesting to get his perspective on it because it, it, he gave voice to quite a few issues that you know, can be legitimately terrifying. That, you know, a giant spider, even, you know, kind of rampaging hooligans, uh, they're not as scary. Even someone like, you know, Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, for as much as you can't actually, you know, kill them for whatever reason, narratively speaking, that they choose to ascribe that. They can be combated. You know, you can see Jason coming. He's a large man in a hockey mask wielding machete. He tends to stick out. And you can then, you know, combat him you know, however you would like to try to. Michael Myers the same way. You, if you know they're coming, you can just, you can fight back. Or you can avoid them. And there's something about being completely helpless before a malevolent force that is terrifying on a whole different level from 
you know, Michael Myers is trying to stab me with a with a you know a butcher knife. That's still terrifying, but it's it's very different when you can confront it. And a big part of what makes again the Paranormal Activity movies, the good ones, so successful, is there's nothing really to fight. You know, it starts out very you know I don't want to say innocently, but it starts out very small. You know, doors move on their own. There's a shadow you can't quite explain. Uh, you know, little things that just you know maybe it's you know, something to do with the house that you can't quite explain. It's not necessarily, it's maybe not malevolent, but when you take it on, but take it on you know, within its totality, it certainly doesn't seem very good. It doesn't seem like it's going to turn out very well for our protagonists. And there's just, uh, and when you're just faced with an overwhelming force that you can't fight, it's, uh, again, being rendered helpless is a very different kind of terror from, Oh crap! Something's chasing me. Uh, there's because there's nothing about you know Toby that you can do. You know there's and actually specifically discussing just the first movie, I wound up quoting Terminator when trying to explain why it was so much more effective that he'd be just kind of a random malevolent force. Because Kyle Reese's uh, brief monologue about the Terminator from that movie is one of the best descriptors of what can be so scary about an uns- about a force like that. It doesn't feel pity or remorse. I wish I could. I used, I used to have that that whole bit memorized, but it's you know it doesn't feel pity or remorse. You can't. Neg- it won't negotiate. It can't be reasoned with, and it absolutely will not stop until you are dead. And that's scary enough when it's a cyborg from the future that you can't really hurt with a contemporary firearm, and you know is a killing machine. It's some again. It's much much worse. When it's an invisible demonic entity that gains strength and power from your fear, the more you notice it, the more you talk about it, the more you're afraid of it, the stronger it gets. Well, what are you going to do? Not be afraid of things? It just it creates this horrible circumstance whereby you there's nothing you can do. And in addition to being in addition to being scary in its own right, and that you know it's invisible, you can barely interact with it, much less you know combat it. You are now helpless and it's a very human thing that we tend to resist the thought of being helpless we don't like it we like to believe that to varying degrees where you're in control or we have the ability to fight back or to struggle and this is not a uniquely again this is not a cultural thing relative to any you know specific country or religion or whatnot this is a very human thing uh we tend to you know, shy away from that feeling. We tend to shy away from that philosophy. We don't like being helpless even when things can be to our benefit. So the notion of being helpless in the face of something that wants to yank your skin off, uh, it, it scares you in a whole different way. And I, I, that's just what I find so fascinating in large part about uh, you know, instances of you know, movies that deal with possession or hauntings like the you know, kind of malevolent forces. They get to have kind of the best of both worlds when it comes to, you know, writing them or even their portrayal. On the one hand, you don't have to uh, you don't have to show them. They get to be invisible. And on the other hand, you don't necessarily have to even deal with them on a larger, you know, ideological scale that you do with, you know, someone like Sauron. Well, again, he may be supreme evil, but he has to want something. You know, okay, he wants the ring to retake physical form and crush the forces and the free peoples of Middle-earth. Relatively concise. You know, uh, Blofeld, well, he wants to remain, he wants to get rich doing 
illegal things. He likes screwing with people, uh, you know, killing spies for money. We may not, but again, consider, you know, clear, relatively concise goals for your, not non-existent, but, you know, a, an antagonist that you don't see very often. And that, and it's a really, the sad thing is when it's done improperly, it just falls apart. Uh, again, for example, some of the later entries into the Paranormal Activity franchise, where they eschew, you know, actual tension building and logical progression of demonic, uh, you know, the force's power in favor of a few jump scares or, hey, we think this would look cool. Uh, and so much so that in this latest one, and I'm, I apologize to anyone who did hear our review, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit here, uh, but they find a magic camera that has the ability to see Toby. Now, this is not a clear-cut form. It is very kind of... Uh, it's very humanoid, but it looks like kind of a black smoke type of deal, uh, maybe more like black oil, is kind of the basic visual representation that he has. And you get a, uh, there's a bit where it looks like you can make out his face, which was, again, not a very good idea uh, for a variety of reasons. But it, it bothers me in the sense that it detracts so much from the fear and from what's scary about it, because, hey, look, it's there. You know, when you see him in, you know, whatever this form is, whatever this perception of him is, and someone starts walking around and he starts screwing with them, it's not nearly as scary as if you, if we, the audience, do not see it coming. And it's just, and the fact that they chose to visually represent him, I, I maintain, massive mistake. Just fundamental error within the conception of, you know, how you want that series to go. Just huge error. And especially when you consider how much how much more effective it is when he's not there. And uh, to go back to this point, there's quite a few movies that took this basic philosophy of not putting it on screen. Uh, and this, since we're dealing in this instance with purely the visual medium, I'm going to focus more on movies and television and whatnot. Because, uh, uh, but the same is true for you know any visual medium, uh, comic books, for example. Uh, the fact that I don't remember all of this off the top of my head might uh, you know, get some people mad at me. But you know, the famous sequence for fans of uh, the Green Lantern franchise, where and the, you're going to have to forgive me, I believe it's Hal Jordan, but if it's if it's a different Lantern, uh, yell at me over the internet. Uh, he finds it might have been Hal. It might again, I can't remember. So I'm not going to. I'm this particular Green Lantern, and we're going to leave it at that. He uh, finds the remains of his wife or girlfriend uh, in a fridge. Now. The, and the way that it is drawn, it's made very clear that's what's there, but we, you know, the viewing audience, never see it in its totality. This is left to our imagination. And it, again, I feel it's so much more effective that way because we do it ourselves. And again, they do it. Um, I've, I've talked about this at length in the past, and I'm going to talk about it in the future more than likely because I still get into arguments with people about, not arguments, discussions. Arguments can imply, you know, acrimony and discussion, you know, reason discourses, dying in this country, but it's not dead yet. Uh, but the first Saw movie, if, if you don't mind uh, me beating this particular drum again, contains very little on-screen graphic violence. And if you've never seen it, you're probably at the, you know, if you've never heard me discuss this in the past, you might be shaking your head going, well, maybe you're, you're just a horribly desensitized human being. I will grant you, sirs or, ma or madam, that I am 
slightly more desensitized than others when it comes to this. I will not deny it. I have seen some things. I, I mean that the first Saw movie, even taken without that, has very little on-screen violence. It is discussed by other characters. There are a few brief still shots uh, that talk about them. A few things are done in you know fast-forward mode, for want of a better phrase. But the vast majority of it is left up to our imaginations to put together. Uh, for example, at the end, when Dr. Gordon cuts off his foot, we see very little. Uh, at the time, you see him... I'm going to apologize if my mic is picking up my, the phone ringing, but there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, you see him kind of start to go into his leg with a hacksaw, but you get a line of blood that spouts out around, again, the prosthetic. Cause, uh, but you don't get anything graphic. You see uh, Carrie Elwes' face as he's doing this. You see Lee Winnell, who is locked in the room with him. You see his face reacting to it, but you never see you know, graphically him go through his own leg. Uh, you don't even see the stump afterwards. The, uh, they did a very good job of covering it with what's supposed to be a torn pant leg. Now, and your mind does the rest. Your mind conceives of this horrible visual experience. Uh, the other kind of sequence in that movie that I believe gets people's skin crawling just a little bit is the man who has to crawl through uh, Constantino wire, uh, razor wire. Because that's a horrifying thought, and we see uh, we see it kind of done in the what became the very traditional kind of saw fast forward action. But there's very little blood actually displayed. They talk about how deep some of the cuts were, but that's just the police officers talking about it. It's not actually shown. There's not they're not with the medical examiner. He's pointing to an incision, going, "Yeah, this went all the way into his stomach, and we found stomach acid." No, it's just it's discussed. You know, your, what your mind does with that information is exponentially worse than what they could put on screen. I mean, even if, you know, they threw out, you know, the notion of ratings or audience appeal, what they show will never match up to what your mind does. Uh, my favorite example from that franchise, and since I'm down to my last 15 minutes or so, I'm going to talk about this last couple of times, uh, you know, again, the power of the human mind and the imagination, and then I'm going to do my list and we'll be done. But my favorite example from that franchise is actually the reverse bear trap. Uh, which claims a grand total of one life, and that is kind of the signature trap from that franchise, and it claims a grand total of one life throughout the, you know, all seven movies. When it is introduced in the original, uh, we see it destroy a styrofoam head as, you know, the jigsaw puppet talks to uh, Shawnee Smith, uh, Amanda, about, you know, this is what is stuck on your head right now. You got to get up, You have to get it off very quickly, or it's going to do this to you. Now, it wouldn't, of course, actually explode the human skull and face. You understand to kill you, it's going to kill you violently. Uh, and again, for those of you who don't know, she actually does escape, uh, gets the device off. It's referenced a few other times in some of the later entries into the franchise, and it finally does kill someone in, I believe, the last, uh, I believe, seven. Uh, Saw 3D, I believe, is when it happens. And they choose to actually show you the device going off. Um, and let me tell you, the CGI kind of slop that they did over someone's face being torn apart, not even like graphically, I mean, not even like Hellraiser quality ripped apart, just, again, it, it's still very, it's still very violent, it's still very graphic. But I remember even the first time I watched it, just kind of looking at it and going, not only is this bad CGI, which takes me out of movies faster than anything, that's not as bad as I thought it would be. You know, I my mind had concocted something very, very different that would happen if this device had actually gone off while 
wired it, well, you know, attached to the jaws of its victim. And so, yeah, I was actually let down by it. You know, again, what my mind had done, so much worse. Uh, for old school horror fans, you know, uh, I believe it was the Cat People. Uh, and that is going back a ways, Mike. That had all of the horrifying incidents take place off screen. You know, the viewing audience does the rest with their mind. And, again, you know best how to scare yourself. You know, you know what makes your skin crawl. You know what gets inside your head, sets up camp, and won't let you sleep for three weeks. Uh, more, Much more so than anyone writing a novel, directing a movie. No one can scare you like you can. A good you know, director, a good author puts you in that position where as much as you are scared by the external things, your mind is working overtime as well. Uh, final kind of example of this, and then we're moving on. Uh, from uh, The Walking Dead, the uh, graphic novel series, not the television. Uh, Glenn's death in that uh, I'm going to apologize in advance if someone hasn't read these novels and I'm spoiling anything. You've all been duly warned. I apologize for not telling you earlier, so don't yell at me. But there's an edition, I believe it's one uh, edition 100, uh, volume 100, something like that, of The Walking Dead, wherein Robert Kirkman uh, kills Glenn. Uh, this is accomplished uh, via <laughs> man by the name of Negan going full-blown Cactus Jack on him. Uh, for those of you who don't necessarily get that reference, it involves a barbed wire-wrapped baseball bat. Now, I have to tell you all, tell you all right now, I have seen some things, all right? The Saw franchise, the Hellraiser franchise, uh, you know, various, again, movies, co- uh, plenty of things. I have seen some stuff that is disturbing. And maybe I'm desensitized. I, uh, I am at this point. I can admit that. But it doesn't – I don't want to say it doesn't affect me because by definition of me perceiving it, it affects me, uh, kind of a reverse Heisenberg principle. I It doesn't bother me as much as you know it used to in some respects. For some reason, the black and white rendering of what took place in poor Glenn's final fate, that uh, – that disturbed me just a little bit, and, and for a variety of reasons. One of which is, I believe, the fact that it was done in – it's all done in black and white. This allows my mind to fill in the gaps. In this instance, that comes down to uh, visual cues, uh, colors, shadings, you know, things of that nature. And this is – again, this is the double-edged sword here whereby actual graphic violence – being portrayed on screen may not necessarily bother me as much. If you give me hints and let my mind do the rest of it, yeah, uh, not so good for me. So again, it's just you know, the, the power of utilizing your audience's mind instead of having to show them every little detail. I'm aware that you know, again, movies as well, visual medium, you're supposed to show, not tell, and it's a fine line to walk. But when you do it correctly, when you let the audience you know, scare themselves with stuff that they can't see, There's a reason the less is more approach can be very effective. All right. Now, for the moment, I assume you've all been waiting for with bated breath, my list of the top 25 horror movies of the last 25 years. Uh, This goes back to 1990. Uh, People who are my friends on Facebook, I already told you all the top spot. Uh, Anyone who hasn't heard it from there, I won't spoil it. I will get there. Uh, Just really briefly as to why I felt so compelled to do this. 
Uh, again, the IMDb list that I read. Uh, well, let me start off by saying it omitted a couple of horror movies that I consider exceptionally important over the last 25 years, some of the better made ones, including Scream and Paranormal Activity. It excluded uh, The Silence of the Lambs, which I consider a horror movie. Now, if you wish to exclude it, I disagree, however, fine and dandy. But if you're going to exclude Silence of the Lambs, you must likewise exclude American Psycho for following within that genre instead of the horror genre. Well, this list didn't. American Psycho was on it. And if you want to tell me that American Psycho is a horror movie, fine, I will concede the point. As again, I believe Silence of the Lambs to be a horror movie. However, it's simply a very poor one. And num their opening entries onto their list, numbers 25 and 24 respectively, are Sleepy Hollow, the Johnny Depp one, and Sweeney Todd. Yet again, Johnny Depp. Now, this list was based on IMDb user rankings. Again, I mentioned that. Which means that anything with broad appeal and not necessarily horror is going to rank very highly. Because it appeals to more people who, give, who provide more favorable ratings, hence inclusion on the list. I found their list to be just relatively awful. And so decided, here's mine. Now, I ask of you all that you not, you know, scream at me over placement based on, you know, one or two slots. Uh, if you think I've excluded anything, first of all, there is the major caveat. I did not put anything on here that I have not seen. If I haven't seen it, I cannot discuss it. I cannot rate it. So bear, keeping that in mind, uh, feel free to comment on this, you know, on, you know, the Facebook feed. Uh, on the Rattlesham Broadcasting Network, you can hit me. You can yell at me on Twitter if you'd like to, uh, at WinfreeMMA. My last name is W-I-N-F-R-E-E. -E. It's a compound word. Frickin' Oprah ruined my life, making me explain that every freaking time. Uh, anyway, so those are the two kind of avenues you can feel free to yell at me over if you disagree with my list. If you think I forgot anything, so on and so forth. All right, uh, let's start at the bottom here. Number tw now, oh, there is one caveat. There, uh, there's one major caveat here. Anybody who had more than w any director who had more than one movie that could qualify only gets one movie. That led to me having to agonize briefly over choosing between Wes Craven's New Nightmare and Scream because I highly considered both of them. Uh, Guillermo del Toro has two different movies, three depending on how you would choose to classify Pan's Labyrinth. I don't categorize it as a horror movie. However, if you do, I won't argue too much. But uh, again, Crimson Peak, which came out very recently and I think very highly of, or The Devil's Backbone, uh, which uh, much earlier in his career. And I just had to, uh, I had to kind of arrive at, okay, directors get one entry. If you've made two movies uh, that I consider really kind of worthy of inclusion, I'm going to have to limit you to one. Unfortunately, um, I did have to break that rule, I believe, twice. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did break that a couple of times here. Um, and I'll get to why I did, uh, in large part, because I think uh, at least two of these movies had to be on the list. Uh, the other one, maybe I could have excluded. Anyway, number 25. Uh, I actually debated these last three spots for a while because I just kind of ran out of what I wanted to include. Uh, coming in at number 25, a Frank Darabont picture called The Mist, an adaptation of a novella by Stephen King of the same name. Uh, my dislike of The Mist as a movie, purely emotional and therefore not terribly relevant. I will freely acknowledge this. I will not try to 
uh, you know, persuade anyone otherwise. And that's simply because he screwed with the ending. And uh, I've mentioned this before, but The Mist was actually the first story by Stephen King that I ever read. So I have a slightly disproportionate uh, you know, again, love of that particular work. And he screwed with the ending. However, looking at it objectively, it's a ballsy ending. And I can appreciate that in a film. I can I very much like you know, the atmosphere they set up. The creatures that they created were very well realized. The characters all make sense. Uh, just If you haven't seen it, again, I will warn you, this is a bleak, bleak movie. Uh, very. But there's some good scares, uh, and it's a relatively well-made movie. Right, I might catch some flack for this next one. Uh, but at 24, I have Silent Hill. Now, please don't yell at me too much if you happen to be uh, if you happen to be a fan of the game series and looked at, and saw the movie and immediately screamed, "This is not the game." Uh, I I liked Silent Hill as a movie. I've never played the video games. In and of itself, as just kind of a very eerie, uh, visually appealing horror story, I find it to be very, very successful. You have a protagonist with motivations that make sense. Uh, you have a perfectly acceptable villains. You have Sean Bean not dying, which always throws me off. You have some nice visual effects. You have some very good practical effects. Again, a lot of the uh, crazy-looking people are actually... Uh, you know, uh, I forget the name of the dance troupe that the filmmakers used, but they... I hired a dance troupe that did a lot of the really awkward looking and awkward walking, uh, and I find that very unsettling. So I've got Silent Hill at number 24. Uh, number 23, an adaptation of a Clive Barker story. So, you know, that was going to rank relatively highly with me, but uh, Candyman is on here. And uh, I've said this before, I think when Sean Comer and I talked about, uh, when Sean Comer and I talked about the, Final Destination franchise, I mentioned before, if there's anyone with a build, a presence, a look, a voice for horror movies, it's Tony Todd, plays the villain in Candyman. Uh, it's just a real, uh, again, a really good, just kind of all-around horror movie. Uh, number 22, I firmly believe the best, were the best werewolf movie of quite some time, actually, uh, Dog Soldiers. You have to be comfortable listening to uh, some Scottish and British accents if you watch this movie, because the, it's a, I believe, a British. Well, again, Scotland is part of Great Britain, so English would be more correct. It was again, made there. It's a really interesting werewolf story about a uh, group of soldiers on maneuvers uh, beset by uh, another group that actually happened to be werewolves. It, again, a well-done werewolf story. Uh, one, certainly one of the better ones of, again, quite some time. Number 21, The Evil Dead remake. Uh, incidentally, I have listed nothing, nothing on my list yet has will have appeared on, the, on IMDb's list. Uh, anyway, number 21, The Evil Dead remake. I imagine a lot of people who went to see this expecting something more akin to Evil Dead 2 or Army of Darkness walked away very, very disappointed. Uh, because the first Evil Dead movie is meant to be nothing but straight-out, relentless, balls-to-the-wall horror. And the Evil Dead remake accomplishes that very well. There's a lot of funky-looking stuff, uh, a good use of music, there's some graphic violence. Uh, no complaints from me. Again, I saw it, and I very, very much enjoyed it. 
Uh, you need a strong stomach as far as that goes. Uh, there's, again, some graphic violence here. But if you're a bit of a gorehound, if you like just, again, a relentlessly paced, scary story, this is a very good uh, decision there. All right, number 20, and this is where, because I have to include horror comedies in here. They are certainly part of the genre. Where they fall, how well they're made, and you know, whether you like horror comedy at all is a bit of a you know, question mark. And I would actually accept an argument that two movies in particular don't necessarily qualify as horror movies. But at number 19, I have a personal favorite, uh, the cult classic Tremors, which recently had its fifth movie released. It was not good. But the original came out uh, 90 or 91. Uh, I forget the exact year, but well within my parameters. And is kind of this, uh, and bear in mind, when I use the phrase romantic, I don't mean in the interpersonal romance, but in the larger kind of narrative, uh, romantic love letter to B-monster movies. Uh, with one of the better independently created monsters of the last little bit. Uh, oh, geez, I'm sorry. I skipped one. I skipped number 20. Uh, yeah. All right. So anyway, 19 is Tremors. Uh, again, great monster movie. And I firmly believe most monster movies fall into the horror genre by and large. So backtracking one, I skipped over this. Number 20, uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which is a glorious uh not humorous, mind you, but a pretty glorious uh, sort of mockumentary send-up of slasher movies. The, the majority of this is done, I hate to say found footage style, but I believe mockumentary is more accurate. And then the climactic sequence is shot in traditional movie fashion. Uh, you've got, it's a great, if you're a fan of horror movies in general, this is a movie that very much appeals to you. Uh, you have cameos from Kane Hodder, uh, I believe Tom Savini, has a cameo. Uh, Robert England is the good guy. If you're a fan of the Walking Dead television series, Herschel's in here. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, really kind of fun stuff like that. Uh, so I have to, and I have to recommend it. So anyway, Behind the Mask, number 20. 19 is Tremors. 18, another movie that I'm it skirts kind of the horror genre as far as horror comedy goes, but uh, Army of Darkness, the third entry into the Evil Dead franchise. Uh, Glorious Bruce Campbell as Ashley J. Williams, uh, sent back in time. Again, this one is, uh, I believe, Sam Raimi's phrase for this movie and uh, Evil Dead 2, which came before this, uh, is splatstick instead of slapstick. So be aware of kind of what you're getting into if you want to pick that up. But uh, again, a bit of a cult classic. Used to be on cable television all the time. Uh, just a good time at the movies. Uh, number 17, another horror comedy, and one that I have to recommend if you haven't seen it, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Uh, perhaps the only person in this movie who you might recognize is Alan Tudyk as uh, Dale. I forget which one he is. Uh, it, this is a great kind of send-up of, uh, not Haunted Cabin, but you know the hillbilly killer subgenre of movies. Uh, it, it's really intelligent. It's a real kind of black comedy of errors that deals a lot with the horror genre. And if you're interested in that, again, there's, I warn you all beforehand, as with most of these movies, but when I talk about, you know, black comedies or, you know, horror comedies in general, I feel there are a few that every now and then I'm going to have to make some disclaimers for if you think it's a bit less family friendly or if you're easily offended. This one contains nudity, violence, profanity, uh, so be aware. 
if you choose to view it, I'm warning you all right now. But it's I again, I enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. I also tend to like black comedies in general. So take that for what it's worth. But uh, again, that's where I found that. Uh, With number 17, we are getting into uh, sorry, number 16. Jeez, I can't count tonight. Uh, Number 16 is The Descent. Now, this was a very, uh, not contra, this movie didn't see a lot of play around here. Let me warn you all right now, if you are claustrophobic, legitimately claustrophobic, don't watch this movie. Uh, You will be far too uncomfortable. Uh, It's shot very well. It's shot in a very claustrophobic sense. The creatures that they unveil later in the movie are suitably terrifying. Uh, It's also a great story about human nature. You know, the descent in this case is not just a literal descent into a cave system. It's a metaphorical descent into what you have to do to survive. Uh, Do not use, I have to warn everyone, there's a couple of different endings to this. Uh, And uh, I tend to, uh, I think they all have merit. But the one that was used for, I believe, the American theatrical release had a bit happier of an ending. Uh, It cut away on a slightly happier note. And I don't believe that's accurate. Uh... I don't believe that's accurate to the story. I think that was altered for the audience that they were going for in an attempt to appeal to more people. But if you don't mind, you know, claustrophobic movies, uh, this is a good one. Number 15, uh, you know, I actually, I'm actually going to have to change this. Um, this, uh, I, cause I just realized this, uh, it was going to be insidious, uh, starring, you know, Patrick Wilson, because I find insidious to be a very interesting film uh the constant use of block chords in the soundtrack to unnerve the audience uh it's a i so it's an honorable mention i'm cutting it because i just realized james wan did this as well i can get by with two on this list i can't get by with three so i'm going to alter that to sinister uh which is also not bad uh the big fall the where insidious kind of falls down a bit i think is when we get too far into astral projection and the actual uh demon being on screen too much again uh they had a hard time visually realizing what they wanted to with that particular monster i think and it, it, the movie suffers a little bit because of it a uh, very eerie movie though so again but uh that has to swap over to sinister because i can't give james Wan three spots if i wouldn't give Wes craven two uh, i can't do it i just can't do it but uh sinister is actually a relatively uh unsettling movie it deals with uh some you know cursed i apologize for painting this in broad strokes i haven't watched it in quite some time uh deals with some cursed video footage uh and the notion that evil acts imprint onto film when they are recorded now that notion is actually explored i think in in quite a few ways in uh much more completely in an episode of masters of horror called cigarette burns uh, starring norman reedus so uh fans of uh, Daryl from The Walking Dead can look that one up. Uh, but it, And Ethan Hawke does a fine job uh, in kind of the main role. He's not great, but he's fine. He, he's kind of usually a fine actor. Uh, it, again, deals with these cursed kind of haunted images. Uh, it has a very interesting evil monster in the form of what they refer, what they refer to as the ghoul. Uh, not a bad... So again... It, because I, I just for some reason it completely slipped my mind that James Wan did Insidious. I actually would have put Sinister down a few spots from here. Uh, I think it's uh, probably above the Evil Dead remake, but below uh, Behind the Mask. So 
So I can slot this in at 20 and bump everything else up one, if you're keeping track of that. Uh, number 14 is Trick or Treat, uh, a nice little direct-to-video anthology horror series. Uh, I know a lot of people who rate this much higher than I do, and I'm not going to – again, I don't feel like arguing placement by and large. Uh, but I, f I find this one to be a very fun – uh, you know, fun for horror movies. It, again, it's anthology style, so you get several loosely connected stories being told. If I, this is one of those that I think you should probably show at every Halloween viewing party. You know, if you're getting together with friends for scary movies on Halloween night, this is a pretty solid inclusion. Uh, it's, you know, friendly to a large group of people watching. It's, you know, you don't miss a whole lot if you have to get up and go to the bathroom or, you know, bring stuff back for your friends or you have to answer the door and you know, hand out candy, however you do it. It's a very kind of easy viewing experience uh, and a well-made, you know, horror movie for that, you know, from that perspective. All right, number 13. Uh, I almost included, uh, there's a different, uh, all right, number, sorry, I am talking about this backwards. Number 13 is a French movie called Martyrs. Uh, this is a very, in some ways, profoundly disturbing movie. Uh, this is one of the movies at the forefront a couple of years back of the French uh, extreme horror uh, revival kind of movement. Uh, I almost put a different uh, French movie on here called Them, which has much less violence on screen and is still a very scary movie. Uh the one, uh, the other movie that falls into that genre of again the French kind of extreme movement, uh, and another very good horror movie. Again, if you have the stomach for this, I will warn you all about that right now. If you haven't seen these, uh, called Inside. But I believe Martyrs is kind of if you want to introduce someone to that genre, to you know what you know that again that kind of movement that took place in French cinema. This is probably the one you want to do. It's extreme. Uh, again, very disturbing in some instances, but it's not nearly as graphically violent as some of the others are. Again, inside is uh, that's the stuff of nightmares in a lot of ways. Uh, this is a very good home invasion movie as well. It's and it I, I the other thing I love about Martyrs is the ending. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, I just love the ending. Uh, it's again, you have to be okay reading subtitles. I will tell everyone this. Apparently, there's a remake. It's an American remake of this movie. Uh, it made the festival circuit. Apparently, it borders on a shot-for-shot -shot remake and has also removed all of the intensity of the original. So basically, if you would consider watching the remake, I'd just tell you, go see the original, and you're probably going to be better off. All right, number 12 is Guillermo del Toro's entry into uh, the list, The Devil's Backbone. Which is a very Del Toro sets mood and atmosphere better than just about anybody, uh, just uh, flat out. Uh, this deals with it's a again part of the problem. I'm gonna have to look up the synopsis because I remember very much liking the movie when I saw it, but it's been a while. Uh, yeah, it deals with uh, some orphans, uh, a haunted location. Uh, Del Toro sets a couple of his movies during the. Uh, Spanish Civil War. Well, that's in Spain, not in Mexico, by the way, for those of you. Uh, that is the frame of reference here is the Spanish Civil War. Uh, it's a very good kind of haunted story, more so than, you know, Eugenere kind of haunted house or haunted location. It deals a lot with the people and the emotions. Uh, and 
the other thing that del Toro does so very, very well is kind of marries the supernatural with the real uh Pan's Labyrinth being a phenomenal example of that uh so much of what goes on in their borders on the fantastical and then there's the kind of raw realism of some of the other action it's a it's a difficult marriage to pull off, but del Toro does it uh, superbly uh just a really uh, i almost wish I could have ranked this higher, but that's where it had to land. That's uh, where I had to fall. Falling just outside of the top ten. Uh, much to my personal chagrin, I just couldn't drop anything from the top ten down for this one. Uh, Cabin in the Woods. Joss Whedon. Kind, I don't want to call it a send-up because that's not right. His just kind of a love letter to horror movies. His, uh, I can't even really call it a deconstruction in the same way that something like Scream is. At the same time, that's not the worst descriptor in the world if you had to talk with someone about it. Uh, this movie sat unreleased for quite some time until uh, Chris Hemsworth gained, gained some famous Thor and Joss Whedon got a bit more clout as he kind of godfathered the first two phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, I don't want to tell anyone too much about it. Again, calling it kind of a deconstruction or a send-up of a lot of horror movies is about as close as I'm going to get to uh, what to telling you about it? I'm just gonna say, if you like horror movies, if you like thinking about them, there's a lot that goes into this movie. Uh, Joss Whedon doesn't, I mean, for all his, for all of the good things that he does, for all of the faults that he has, he does not make stupid. Uh, and I re- again, Cabin in the, Cabin in the Woods is very much in that vein of you know you got to kind of pay attention. It's a very interesting kind of send up. And I keep using that phrase, and I'm not sure it's completely accurate because this is not humorous in the traditional sense. Uh, just a really kind of interesting look and dissection of aspects of horror. So I, I just have to re- – again, I recommend this. If you like horror movies, uh, especially different genres, uh, there's a lot in there that is fun to look at. All right, number 10, and I could have put this higher, but the original meta movie, the original deconstruction send-up. Wes Craven's Scream. This, when ta- I talked a little bit with, uh, when I did my tribute to Wes Craven, talking primarily, talking with Benjamin J. Cologne, uh, we talked a little bit about Wes Craven. Well, that whole podcast is about him, but about his influence. Uh, a few days later, I believe, on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show, uh, Jeff Harris and I, and for those of you who don't know, Jeff Harris does a lot of the movie reviews for 411 Mania. He also is on that, uh, again, the MMA show with me. And I brought up that Wes Craven, this was again not too long after he passed, is a guy who completely redefined the genre, uh, the horror genre, three different times across different decades. Uh, he made, I believe, hands down the best of the kind of rape and revenge movies uh, with Last House on the Last House on the Left. He revitalized uh, and completely altered the slasher genre with A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, in the 80s. And in the 90s, he revitalized it again, breathed new life into not just the slasher genre, but the horror genre in general with Scream. And I can't think of almost any, the only other director in terms of, you know, movie craft who can lay claim to that, and Jeff brought this up, is Steven Spielberg. There's no one else off the top of my head who has been able to completely redefine an entire genre of filmmaking. And that's what he does with Scream. It's a it's a well-written, well-acted, well-realized, kind of tongue-in-cheek, 
uh, deconstruction of the slasher genre, which ironically enough became so successful that it spawned its own, you know, franchise. Uh, It's, again, it's well acted. You have a solid cast, a very intelligent script. Uh, Again, this is another one of these movies, and I'm going to say this about all of these later these later ones. If you like horror movies, you should see this. And Scream most definitely falls into that list. Uh, again, I wish I could have put this higher. And if anyone wants to yell at me over placement again, uh, feel free to do so, but know that I'm not going to yell back. Uh, number nine, another horror comedy. And there's a, one more appearing on this list after this one. Uh, Zombieland. And I like Zombieland. You know, it's when you're making a horror comedy. Uh, again, the, there's another movie on this list, and I want to talk about this a little bit more in depth when we get to that one. One of the keys to making a good, uh, in this instance, zombie comedy, is making a good zombie movie first and foremost. And for as much as Zombieland is, you know, funny, uh, plenty of sight gags, some good, you know, dialogue, uh, Bill Murray in one of the greatest cameos of all time. It's fundamentally a very good zombie movie about, you know, people trying to put their lives back together after zombies have destroyed the world. And with that as your foundation, then, you know, the character interactions and whatnot being humorous works very, very well. I mean, you know, after this movie, I, before this movie, I never would have thought to look at Woody Harrelson and go, hey, that guy's kind of a badass. Tallahassee is kind of a badass. So, and this is one of those that is not a scary movie. It's it's a zombie movie, uh, a very good, you know, kind of comedy. So I very much recommend that. Uh, in something of a 180 from the zombie comedy, you have, I would argue, the best zombie movie of the last, oh, gee, well, clearly the last 15 years, uh, with maybe one exception that is actually higher on the list. But 28 Days Later. Now, I don't want to talk too much about the movie. It's another, you know, it's a zombie movie. Whatever the director says, it's a zombie movie. And I want to yell at him in just a second. But it's a really uh, very personal, again, small cast, relatively small budget, beautifully shot, and more so than any other movie, uh, any other movie dealing with the end of the world like this. This one conveys the sense of, there's no one else here. Uh, you know, a, a lot of, again, a lot of movies deal with kind of with the end of the world, with the end of civilization. You know, billions of people are dead. There's a small human population now. They don't do, they don't always do the best job of making you feel how empty things are around you. And the sequ- there are sequences in this movie, especially if you know London, uh, where some of it is shot, that are places that have people. 24 hours a day. Uh, you know, Trafalgar Square. Uh, there's a shot of them driving on this uh, highway that is very famous and always busy. Places that have people. Always have people. And in this movie, there is nothing. There is no one there. And it is exceptionally unnerving. And I have to, and it's one of the things I most appreciate about this movie is that sense of isolation of huge space that no, there should be millions of people here and there's no one. And that's very unsettling. Now to Danny Boyle, who directed this movie, who swears up and down, it's not a zombie movie. It's a zombie movie. You made a zombie movie, sir. Get over it. You made a darn 
good zombie movie. Uh, and all of the zombie purists probably cursed Danny Boyle for being one of the advents of uh, fast zombies instead of slow zombies. And they're infected, not the risen dead. I don't care. They're zombie. Uh, again, probably the best zombie movie of the last 15 years. Again, one maybe exception. All right, number seven, uh, another movie I kind of wish I could have put higher because of how much I love it, but I tried to be a bit objective. James Wan, James Wan, his first entry onto this list, and I had to give him two, uh, but Paranormal Activity. No, that's not James Wan. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, no, it's Warren Pelly. Ugh, I'm looking too far ahead on my list. Paranormal Activity, the original. Uh, I've talked at length about how much I love this movie. They made found footage believable. Uh, which is a very difficult thing to do because at some point, even as an audience member, I look at what a I look at someone carrying a camera during a time and go, no, you would not be carrying the camera. You would have dropped it and ran for your life. They find a way around that. This movie does a masterful job of building, releasing, building, releasing tension. It starts out very small. I mean, some of the first scary things you see in this movie are just you hear creaking and a door moves a little bit. Not even like, you know, slams, just shifts. Uh, and it's still very scary. You know, a shadow you can't explain, a chandelier swinging when there's no earthly reason that it should, uh, and it just, and it builds and it builds, and I have a deep-seated affection for this movie. This movie, I'm not going to lie, that movie scared me a lot. Not in the theater. In the theater, uh, I don't get, I don't categorize being scared as something that happens just in a movie theater. A movie scares you if it stays with you after you leave. And Paranormal Activity stayed with me after I left the theater. Uh, I, I've talked at length about my love for that movie across a couple of different podcasts, so uh, check that out if you want to hear, you know, again, uh, the Long Road to Ruin discussion of those movies uh, with myself, Sean Comer, and Mark Radlich is worth listening to. Uh, but the reason I jumped to James Wan is actually next up on my list. Number six, uh, James Wan, Lee Wanell, Saw. This is another movie I love. Uh, I've talked at length about how I feel it is unfairly maligned as the progenitor of the torture porn genre. That is much more the movie Seven and then Hostel, which is nothing but. I believe Saw is an exceptionally well-written horror mo horror story. Uh, it's done on a small budget. It's done very well. A lot of what is scary goes on in your own head. Uh, the whodunit aspects are done very well. Uh, the twist at the end is very well done, very well revealed. Uh, again, I just have a deep-seated affection for that movie because it I didn't see it in theaters. I don't know how often I've told this story, but the original Saw, when I would see trailers for it, I just thought it would be nothing but gore and violence, and I wasn't interested. Uh, my stepmother told me that's not what it was. I need to see it because I like horror movies. So I did. I watched it, and I developed a deep affection for it. I love that movie. Uh all, pretty much everything about it, I like. And it, it again, if your major concern about watching this movie is you don't like on-screen violence, it's a very intense movie, but there's not a lot of graphic violence. And if again, if that's your only gripe, I don't think it's a legitimate reason not to see the movie. If there are other things you're not interested in, if you don't like horror movies or you know what have you, then fine and dandy. I'm just saying, if the only thing holding you back is you don't, if you, is you're not a gore hound, you don't like gore. You're actually pretty safe with this movie. It's not a gory movie. All right, number five. Uh, the best, by definition, given its placing on the list, the best zombie movie of the last 15 years, Shaun of the Dead. Now, 
what I was talking about with Zombieland, uh, it goes exceptional, almost more so here for Edgar Wright and Nick Frost. Because this is part of their, what do they call it? The, like, uh, Blood and Coronetto trilogy. It's Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and uh, At World. And one of the things that those those guys, everyone involved with these movies, understand is you can, if you're going to make kind of fun of these movies, fundamentally you must make a good one. You know, Shaun of the Dead, in addition to being funny, especially if you like deadpan British humor, and I do, that is, that's right up my alley, much more so than traditional American humor, especially lately. Uh, they're, the way that they just kind of deadpan things, it, it appeals to me. It, but Shaun of the Dead, in addition to being funny, is just a good zombie movie. You know, if you take out the humor or you redirect it into being, you know, into supposed to be legitimate tension, you get a good zombie movie. The addition of the humor, it enhances the overall product instead of being a crutch. I mean, them, you know, sitting down to debate which records they're going to throw at the zombies that are slowly making their way towards them, I think is hilarious. The final scene where they hole up from the zombies in the bar is, again, remove the humor, and it's still, and that is just, I mean, again, it's not even a very humorous sequence. It's a very good, you know, zombies, you know, being besieged by zombies sequence, and that, and the humor doesn't play into it. It's very well done. I, I really can't say enough good things about Shaun of the Dead. It was my introduction to, you know, Edgar Wright, Nick Frost, uh, Simon Pegg. And it forever holds a place in my heart for that because those guys have provided me with hours of entertainment. Uh, you know, not just Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz. I tend to very much enjoy Simon Pegg and other stuff. Uh, you know, Run, Fat Boy, Run, which I still chuckle at every now and then. Uh, just a very, very uh, well done Horror comedy, you know, zombie comedy. All right, number four is James Wan's second appearance on the list, and I had to give it to him because uh, this movie scared me. Uh, number four is The Conjuring. Uh, another, again, this would have been Patrick Wilson's second appearance on the list if I'd kept uh, Insidious on. But The Conjuring is, uh, look, The Conjuring is scary. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden does a very good job. Vera Farminga does a very good job as one of the mediums. Patrick Wilson, who again, you wouldn't have thought that guy would invent himself as one of the, as kind of the stalwart horror protagonist, but here he is. It's a very eerie movie. It's a very scary movie. It has some of the be one of the better jump scares, uh, I'd borderline say of all time. It does a great job of developing atmosphere, of developing tension so that you're not just scared because of loud noises you're scared by what's going on and uh, just a, a James Wan is a true is a gifted horror director again I I was going to put Insidious on here then I realized I couldn't give the guy Saw the Conjuring and Insidious I, just, I couldn't do it. not if I was going to cut off Del Toro and Craven at one and uh, you know again the Conjuring at number four might even be a little bit low but the next three I I just feel are superbly made movies uh number three and you have to have some patience with this movie is uh the swedish film let the right one in uh man probably the best vampire movie of the last 15 years uh and that's saying something because there there have been a lot of them and some of them have been good uh the american remake is not bad it's just not nearly as good i warned every, I, I just i warn you about have, needing to have patience because 
Swedish films have a very deliberate pace. Uh, the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, this one, you know, it's just something about their style of filmmaking. You have to be aware of it. You have to be prepared for it. Otherwise, you're going to think it's boring. Uh, the little kid being the vampire is has the potential to be very scary. The scene wherein she comes into a house uninvited, uh, just it, it, I still, I don't want to say I have nightmares because I don't, but it gives me chills and I still vividly can picture that sequence. The violence that is displayed is few and far between, but it is given that much more power because of it. It's also beautifully shot. Uh, again, uh, this is a movie that a lot of people who know a lot more than I do have said a lot more things about it being great. All right, number two could have been number one. And honestly, if you choose to disqualify my number one entry, then this goes up to number one, and I don't even bat an eye. Uh, number two is the Australian movie The Babadook. Now, I have seen uh, some negative reactions to this movie, some people disliking the child actor. To them, to anyone who dislikes this child actor and the performance he gives, I tell you two things. One, Jake Lloyd. Two, Reggie the Reckless. Your arguments about him being the most annoying are invalid. Because I have at least two cases of that not being true. In the case of Jake Lloyd, I have two different movies that just are attached to his name. The kid is, I think part of the, one of the things that audiences are, rea you know, people react to so negatively about this kid is, you don't want that to be your kid. The kid is, you know, ADHD to some degree. He's just a little bit unruly. And that, you know, no one likes unruly kids. But it's not, it never, uh, when I watched it, I never got to the point where I wished harm on the kid. You know, I, he's just a kid growing it in his world and having a difficult time with it. Uh, Essie Davis, who plays uh, our primary protagonist, does a great job as a grieving, depressed, stressed out mother. Uh, the creature itself are visualizations of him as, you know, the long coat, the long fingers, and the top hat is a great monster. Uh, the fact that we never see his other form, his true form, is actually to the movie's benefit. And like all, it, it does a great job with atmosphere, it does a great job with scares, it does a great job visually. There are almost, I don't remember there being any flat-out jump scares where, hey, loud noise, and yay, we scare, you, you're not scared. Jump scares aren't scares, they're startles. There's a world of difference. They can be very effective, and I certainly appreciate them, but... Anyone who any movie that over relies on it fails fundamentally. It does a great job with that, and like all truly great horror movies, like all truly great stories, they're about more than what they are on the surface. The Babadook is as much kind of an allegory about depression and loss and fear and you know being terrified of motherhood as it is about evil force terrorizing woman. And that gives the story more depth. That gives the story, you know, staying power. And if you don't mind being scared, again, I highly recommend The Babadook. And that leads into number one, uh, I believe fundamentally one of the two best horror movies ever made, uh, The Silence of the Lambs. Came out in 1991. Now, again, I have heard the arguments that it's not a horror, and I disagree with them. For me, and again... There are other movies that are similar to Silence that I don't think are horror movies, and I have a hard and trying to figure out why. I believe the fundamental tenet of a horror movie is that its goal is to one of its goals is to scare you. Now, if we compare something like Silence to a similar movie like Seven, I don't think Seven's goal is to scare you. 
I don't believe that is a fundamental part of what that movie does. That movie wants to, you know, build suspense, create some shock value. I don't think it tries to unnerve you and scare you on a fundamental level. And The Silence of the Lambs tries to scare you. It does so without the supernatural. It does so just by letting you all know, hey, if I, you don't mind, if you'll forgive me quoting Stephen King a second time here, monsters are real and sometimes they win. And that, and again, that is, I believe, the most terrifying thing about Silence of the Lambs is there is nothing, there is no way to hide from what that is. There are people out there like Buffalo Bill and like Hannibal Lecter. Now, if that doesn't scare you, if the reality of another human being walking the planet, maybe on your, maybe living in your state, maybe in your city, maybe on your street, with the internal capabilities of doing horrible things to each other, is not scary, I don't know what is. I also believe Silence of the Lambs is just a fundamentally perfect movie. I can watch that movie... I can always find something new. I find I can't find fault, you know. And I'm a, I tend to be a very critical thinker, and I can't find flaws that I can point out. I mean, again, may there's if I'm really nitpicky, there's a couple of things that, and even one of them isn't. Uh, the only sort of technical error I, that I think exists in that movie uh, is in the final sequence where Clarice is confronting Bill, and the lights go out. Uh, now, that whole scene, for a long time, I actually thought it was shot in total darkness because Jodie Foster does such a phenomenal job of acting like it's total darkness. But there's actually a, there's one of the shots where Bill reaches out his hand and you can see the shadow. And if there's no light, there's no shadow. If there's a shadow, there has to be an external light source. One gripe, one minor technical thing that I imagine most people don't. Though now that I pointed it out to you, you're probably not going to be able to unsee it. But just again... The way it's written, the adaptation from the source material, the acting, the storytelling, the narrative, it, I have no flaws. I, I can find nothing wrong with The Silence of the Lambs. I just can't. And I really don't – I haven't met anyone yet who has been able to dissuade me or present a compelling counterargument there. All right, so that's my list. Uh, since I did blurbs on each of them, I'll go ahead and give it and uh, read it off to you from the bottom to the top one more time. Then I'm out of here. Number 25, The Mist. Number 24, Silent Hill. 23, Candyman. 22, Dog Soldiers. 21, The Evil Dead Remake. 20, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. 19, Tremors. 18, Army of Darkness. 17, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. 16, The Descent. 15, Sinister. 14, Trick or Treat. 13, Martyrs. 12, The Devil's Backbone. 11, Cabin in the Woods. 10, Scream. 9, Zombieland. 8, 28 Days Later. 7, Paranormal Activity. Six, Saw, five, Shaun of the Dead, four, The Conjuring, three, Let the Right One In, two, The Babadook, and The Granddaddy of Silence of the Lambs. All right, that's my list. Uh, what are yours? You know, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, however you're listening to this, if you would like to comment, uh, you can go to the Radlich and Broadcasting Network Facebook page. You can leave us a message. You can tell me how wrong I am. Uh, or, you know, any you might have moved around, anything you think I've I've omitted, anything that... Uh, again, I don't rate what I haven't seen. So anything that I haven't seen that you believe I should see or that I'm missing out, uh, I'm open to all those suggestions. So feel free to, uh, on the Ride Election Broadcasting Network, on this, you know, entry into that, because uh, you can find it there. Go ahead and comment. You can leave your own lists if you'd like, or just yell at me for mine. I'm okay with that either way. All right. On that note, we're going to be done here.
Uh, I'll, next time, because I will be back next week. Sorry, I had to take care of that. Next week, I'll be back, and I will be looking at movie monsters. Uh, some protagonists, some antagonists. So that's on the agenda for next week. Just, you know, movie monsters. King Kong, Godzilla, Godzilla's Playmates, um, the giant ants from them, the Graboids, uh, the Predator Alien, the Xenomorphs, stuff like that. Uh, what goes into a good... So tune in next week. Uh, if anyone out there... Again, I don't have a co-host lined up for that, but to anyone out there that wants to, I'm certainly open to it. And we can talk movie monsters, uh, specifically kind of the unthinking variety is going to be my goal. Because otherwise, you know, I'd spend the whole time talking about Pinhead and Freddy, and we wouldn't go <laughs> beyond those two. All right. Until next time, thank you all for being here. Uh, again, I'm back next week. Uh, this Sunday, I'm on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show previewing UFC Fight Night 77. No movie review this week. Uh, you can go back in the archives. A couple of days ago, Mark and I had our, he calls it a split seven-inch review. Uh, he reviewed Gem and the Holograms. I reviewed Paranormal Activity 5. Uh, n- not this coming Wednesday, the Wednesday after that. So the second Wednesday in November, uh, that will be, what, the 11th? Yeah, the 11th. Mark and I will be reviewing Spectre, uh, the latest entry into the Daniel Craig James Bond series. Uh, I'm excited for Spectre. I, I've liked Daniel Craig as James Bond. Uh, Ray Fiennes has did a good job stepping into the M role in the last movie. And, uh, oh, Christoph Waltz as the primary villain. I, look, I am a huge fan of Christoph Waltz. Uh, and I think it's a crying shame that for some reason no one, apart from Quentin Tarantino, knows how to use Christoph Waltz's talents. But I have some faith in Sam Mendes being able to do it, because he did a darn good job with you know getting Javier Bardem to turn in, I think, the best Bond villain ever. Uh, last time out so we'll see we'll see uh, uh, again Christoph Waltz is usually Chris, the appearance of Christoph Waltz usually means you're getting my money so a couple of weeks we'll be reviewing that Peanuts movie the week after that so pretty big shift in pace there <laughs> alright again I'm back next week uh, thank you all for being here thank you for listening thank you for your continued support uh, thank you for telling your friends about this if you know anyone who needs audio material for whatever reason let them know about us if we have a show you think they'd like you know we've got one of pretty much everything. We've got movie franchises. We've got comic books. We've got movie reviews. We've got this show. We've got mo- again movie franchise. We've got music uh, with the Metal Hammer of Doom. We've got sports with Jason Teasley. So again, we've got something for everybody. So give it a give it a try. Uh, give us a you know tell your friends about us if you think they'd enjoy it. All right. On that note, I am out. Uh, and as Halloween is coming up, I'm going to end with again. I usually have you know. Uh, something about, you know, appreciating villains for making heroes better. I'm going to remind you all of this one. You know, you're, you're not really afraid of the dark. You're afraid of what the dark hides. You're not afraid of, you know, the bump in the night. You're afraid of what caused it, and you can't see it. Your mind, you, know, you scare you more than anyone else does. And, uh, again, be aware of the sh- Again, you can't see what's in the shadows. That's why they scare you. It's not the shadow. It's the fact that you you don't know what's in it. So keep the lights handy, huh? All right. Take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next week. So say goodnight to the bad guy.